American legal education is by far the best in the world, but it needs to, you know, it needs to evolve to match up with the changes that are taking place in legal practice uh, in the U.S., which are numerous and and uh, frequent. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi in Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, and tell you about a promotion just for Legal Talk Network listeners. Clio will give you a 25% discount to the Clio Cloud Conference held on September 23rd and 24th in Chicago. Go to cliocloudconference.com forward slash register in the promotional code Legal Talk underscore Clio Cloud will get you the 25% off the registration fee. Again, that's Legal Talk underscore Clio Cloud, but act fast, and they're 90% sold out right now. Yeah, I don't know whether this will provide an incentive or a disincentive, but uh, those who register will get to see me there because I'm among the speakers. I'm going to be speaking about cloud security and legal ethics uh, at the conference, so I hope to see you there. You're going to have to fight off the autograph seekers, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Well, Today, we're going to have a firsthand look at the American Bar Association's agenda for the upcoming year. We have as our guest the ABA's new president, Jim Silkenat, uh, who has just taken office today. We're looking forward to hearing from him about his goals and initiatives for the nation's largest legal organization. And Jim, who we want to congratulate for his election today, has been in the legal field for more than 40 years with a heavy focus in international law, presently a partner of the Sullivan and Worcester Law Firm, where he specializes in international joint ventures, mergers and acquisitions, privatizations, and private equity investment funds. Jim became involved with the ABA early in his career in the mid-1970s when the ABA was sending its first delegation to China. They asked Jim to be part of the committee. Since then, he's been heavily involved in their international matters and was eventually asked to chair the ABA's international law section. He's held numerous positions within the ABA throughout his career and led to his decision to run for the presidency and his election. So congratulations to you on your first day in the office, Jim, and welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Pleased to be with you. Jim, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the things that you've said is uh, going to be a priority for your term is uh, legal education. And the ABA has had a task force on the future of legal education, which has just come out with, I guess, what it's calling a working paper, where it's uh, outlined some of its preliminary conclusions about legal education. And I'm not sure if you can, I'm not sure if it's fair to say that they've said that legal education is broke, but uh, they've certainly recommended a a number of ways in which legal education should be uh, reformed uh, relating to to financing uh, of education, to the system of accreditation, uh, in some other matters. What do do you plan to do about reforming uh, the way legal education uh, is offered in this country? Well, I'm glad that the ABA task force has, has come out with a, a strong working paper on these issues. It still needs to be developed. We still need to uh, work out the details and take it to our House of Delegates. But I'm, I'm really pleased to see 
uh, how deeply it looked into these issues. This is something I pressed for more than a year ago, and, and um, I'm glad we're now finally getting down to some concrete proposals. When I talk around the country uh, at law schools or other bar association events, I always lead off this topic saying American legal education is by far the best in the world, but it needs to, you know, it needs to evolve to match up with the changes that are taking place in legal practice uh, in the U.S., which are numerous and and uh, frequent. So um, I'm hoping this uh, this report, as it finally develops, uh, will address those the problems that exist and that we've all been reading about over the past year or so. And one of those I'll share with you, Jim, my, uh, my son graduated from my alma mater, the University of Iowa, with a, a law degree and a master's degree in urban and regional planning. And his price tag when he came out was over $100,000. Is that something that you hear fairly commonly? It is. Um, I think uh, both undergraduate um, uh, debts of people graduating from college, university, plus the, the law school debt uh, is a burden that's very tough for anybody to bear. I would have had a very tough time coming out of law school uh, handling something similar, and I'm very sympathetic with the folks that, that face that problem now. One of, the, one of the specific recommendations out of this report is that the ABA uh, look at its own system for accrediting law schools and, and perhaps look at ways of allowing schools more, uh, I guess, what the report calls heterogeneity in the way they structure themselves and the programs they offer. How do you respond to that? I mean, do you think the accreditation system of the ABA is working as it is, or does it need to be reformed in some way? Well, I think the accreditation system over the past, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years has really produced the the strong uh, legal education system we have. But adjustments in it uh, are probably necessary, as I said, to match up with the changes that are taking place in, in the legal profession. A greater variety of offerings, a greater flexibility in the kinds of programs that, that law schools can, can offer to students uh, is a good thing, uh, I think. We still want to cover the core you know, basic uh, legal issues uh, in any law school curriculum, but a greater variety in how those are delivered, uh, what the costs are, uh, how the law schools are structured strikes me as a very positive development. Jim, in California, we've tried to address the cost of legal education in part by allowing unaccredited law schools, which I think California is the only state in the nation that does that. But it results in fifth and fourth tier law schools. What are your thoughts about that type of option in terms of legal education? I think what we've seen in California are extraordinarily low uh, bar passage rates from the non-accredited schools. Um, 25%, just, as a, just to let you know what the number is. And, and I've seen some lower numbers that, uh, than that at some of the unaccredited schools. That, that's really not an acceptable way, I don't think, to try to educate recent uh, college graduates uh, and bring them into the legal profession. I don't think that those schools are really providing the kind of education that the students deserve and that the, the public would demand from the legal profession. The accreditation process that the ABA has developed over time here, while we need to continue to tinker with it, uh, I think has produced a good result. Do you think the ABA will ever take a stand uh, and let the California legislature know that it's not in favor of these unaccredited law schools? Well, I think we, we've taken that stand uh, for some time now. Our, our position is that uh, students receive a 
a better legal education when they go to accredited law schools. Let me. I wanted to turn to uh, the question of providing uh, of access to legal representation in this country. Although we frequently hear, and one of the issues that's, that's talked about in terms of law schools is that there's a glut of lawyers in the country. But at the same time, we're seeing more and more people going without legal representation in the courts uh, or turning to self-help legal remedies, such as sites such as Legal Zoom. Uh, we're hearing about dramatic shortfalls in IOLTA revenue across the country that's leading to cuts in budgets and legal services programs. What can the ABA do uh, and what, what would you like to see it do during your term to enhance uh, access to legal services and access to justice for those who are not able to afford traditional legal services? And Jim, I'm going to jump in here real quick before you answer that question and throw in the added concept of what's gone on here at the University of California at Irvine, the newest, newest law school in our area, yep. which is that they have programs where if you agree to work for five years after you graduate in a public government job, you get your education paid for. I think those are positive developments. And, and actually, you've identified what I will be our biggest new initiative within the, the, the Bar Association for the coming year, and that's to focus on the creation of a Legal Access Job Corps, or at least that's what we're calling it, uh, to try to bring together really the significant unmet legal needs around the country uh, and the, the lack of opportunities for younger lawyers, particularly those just graduating from law school, to develop practical experience. If you address those two problems um, in the same bucket, uh, there is a, a, at least a, a hope, based on a number of models around the country, that something really significant uh, can happen in uh, helping provide legal services to folks who need them and now can't afford them or don't have access to them. So this legal access uh, job corps task force that uh, had a preliminary meeting here in New York last week and will be meeting uh, soon uh, in in San Francisco will, be, um, I think, be leading the charge on the development of those issues. So how would that work? And can you provide us any more details of what you're thinking is of how you see that uh, moving forward? Sure. There, there are, as I said, uh, um, maybe half a dozen models around the country for how this might be organized. Some are based uh, or organized by law schools where they uh, provide uh, funding for uh, recent graduates, people who've recently passed the bar to work in public interest uh, institutions uh, or representing people uh, who, with unmet legal needs, really provide training, provide services to people who otherwise wouldn't receive them. That program has been extraordinary, extraordinarily successful, uh, both in providing longer-term jobs for those younger lawyers and in providing services to folks who otherwise wouldn't have it. Uh, others have been organized by bar associations. A couple of them have been organized by chief justices. There's even one in South Dakota where the problem was a little bit different. There are a number of counties in South Dakota and, and frankly, in some other states uh, that don't have a lawyer anymore. You know, there had been a uh, one or two lawyers uh, locally, but those have uh, moved to a big city or died off. So there are communities where you have to drive you know, 100 or 200 miles to, to actually meet with a lawyer. So the the Bar Association worked with the legislature to develop a new program to um, fund younger lawyers to go to those 
uh, counties without legal advice. Um, and that seems to be working uh, very well. I, I, South Dakota, I know, is very proud of that development. And I think other states will be following that model uh, in providing legal services to, to folks in communities without a lawyer. We'd like to give you the opportunity to give some recent law school graduates your advice on how to handle their uh, their out, their overwhelming debt. What would you say to them if you had the chance to address a, a law student saying, look, I've got $100,000 in debt, Jim, what do I do? A complicated issue and would vary depending on what sort of career path uh, folks wanted, uh, wanted to follow. I think bar associations, whether it's at the national level, like the ABA, or at the state and local level, provide real opportunities for recently graduated lawyers to match up with uh, potential employers, to develop some skills uh, that are marketable in today's economy. That's what I would recommend and, frankly, have been recommending to you know, recent graduates uh, with whom I've met recently. I, I think that gives younger lawyers an advantage over the competition, allows them to market themselves in a more effective way because they've got skills that others might not have and contacts uh, that will help them develop a career. That doesn't solve all the problems, uh, and I think that is part of why we need to address uh, some of the funding issues, uh, some of the cost issues uh, with regard to law schools, and, and we're very intent on doing that. One quick issue I wanted to follow up on regarding uh, legal ser- access to legal services is is this question of uh, these uh, the increasing proliferation of these self help websites. I, I mentioned Legal Zoom, uh, probably one of the most popular of those. How do you see the? Is there a role for the ABA in dealing with these <laughs> these self help sites? I mean, should the ABA be more actively uh, lobbying to uh, somehow uh, regulate self help legal services? I think there are some proper concerns about how some of the those sites are operated and the advice they, they provide. That winds up really being, I think, a, a, a state matter, depending on what the um, you know right to practice rules are in a particular state. Whether the ABA ought to be playing sort of a coordinating role in that, uh, that's an interesting idea and one we, we ought to look at. Some of the ones I've seen actually provide good advice, but many of them do not. And I'm, I'm tempted to say, that, that most times you get what you pay for in, in, in these kinds of sites, uh, but that's probably too glib an answer. And before we move on to our next segment, our next questions, we need to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. 
And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Robert Ambrosi. Well, Jim, I don't, I'm not sure it's on your agenda for the year, but I was interested to find out what your thoughts are about the standardization of the law practice across the country. Do you ever think that we will see one bar exam for the entire country? I think it's going to be a while in coming. Uh, that, that's a, a topic that, that I've often speculated about. Uh, when you see uh, the differences uh, within the legal profession in, in one state, there are enormous differences between what a, an antitrust lawyer in Manhattan does and what a slip-and-fall lawyer does in, in, in uh, Queens, let's say. Um, but they have the same legal license uh, to practice and to practice law in the state of New York. Uh, what an antitrust lawyer does in New York or what a tax lawyer does in New York is really the same as what that kind of practitioner would do in Arizona or or Illinois. And one could make a decent argument that one ought to have one system of regulation uh, all around the United States that would obviously make things easier for lawyers to be in locations where jobs are. But I think that's going to be a difficult process given the the state-by-state regulation we've always had. Uh, There will be resistance to change. So I'm hopeful that things are moving in that direction. There are a number of states that have sort of, on a regional basis, you know, granted reciprocal rights, but it's not likely to happen all across the country, I, I don't think, anytime soon. Another issue relating to the regulation of the legal profession is that uh, involving uh, non-lawyer ownership of, of law firms. Of course, the uh, UK, through its Legal Services Act, uh, now permits non-lawyers to uh, invest and have an ownership interest in firms providing legal services. Uh, here in the United States, of course, uh, that still is not considered appropriate. Do, do you do you see? Do you think? clients could potentially benefit by allowing more lenient uh, business structures that allowed non-lawyers to invest in law firms? Both the UK now and, as you indicated, in Australia allow this. We're we're beginning to see how that will play out in those local markets, whether it really provides effective services to the public and and a good way to to manage uh, the legal profession. Here in the U.S., we've thought about the topic periodically over the last 10 or 12 years. One state, well, the District of Columbia, allows a limited measure of non-lawyer participation as a partner in a law firm. Uh, but all the rest of the states um, you know, follow a dis- different system and, and don't allow that. We recently, uh, in the ABA, had a, a resolution, at least consideration of a resolution uh, on this topic and it was overwhelmingly defeated. Actually, never came to the to our to the floor of our House of Delegates because of opposition to it. And I think it was on the, the grounds of concerns about client confidentiality and client service. That was the the basis for the resistance uh, to the idea. Um, I, it, it will it will take a little while for us all to see how the the changes in the UK and Australia play out. My guess is the topic will come up again and we'll look at see what their experience has been. So I don't know that we've actually given you the opportunity to lay out your platform and uh, what your plans are for the year. So what, what is it that you'd like to accomplish? Well, there's, a, there's such a long list of important issues facing both the legal profession and 
uh, our justice system at the moment. We've talked a bit about legal education. That's obviously a high priority for lawyers everywhere, no matter what kind of practice you're in. Maybe uh, the most immediate issue on the broader national legal context is really the madness that Washington's across-the-board budget cuts sequestration is causing for our, our federal courts, particularly in, I think, putting at risk the delivery of effective legal representation to poor people who are accused of, uh, of federal crimes. You know, we've seen this court funding problem at the state level all across the country for a number of years, but now it's hitting at the federal level. And, and that's something that, again, touches all lawyers, touches really everybody. If you don't have a fully functioning court system, how can you deliver justice to the folks who um, are appealing to courts for help? How do you, you know, handle family law matters? How do you handle uh, housing foreclosure issues? How do you handle labor issues? How do you handle uh, disputes between employers that uh, frequently result in uh, an inability to hire new workers? So the lack of a fully functioning court system caused, I, I strongly believe, by, by a lack of will in Washington is a huge problem for our justice system. So finding a way to address that is something the ABA cares about deeply. There has been some discussion here in California among some retired federal judges and, and some uh, ambitious lawyers, I would say, that uh, they're thinking of, of funding a Marbury versus Madison-style suit uh, on the basis of equal protection between the three co-equal branches of government, arguing that the legislature's failure to adequately fund the federal, uh, the judiciary is unconstitutional. And that has gotten wonderful reception from the federal court judges, the retired ones that we've talked to. What, what's your sense of such a strategy? I haven't heard about that particular um, potential lawsuit. But I think what's happening now with the sequestration of funds uh, is really handicapping courts in ways <clears throat> that our Constitution does not allow. And, and finding a way to resolve that problem, whether it's through a lawsuit or hopefully through some other means, um, is something that I think all lawyers uh, should, should be working to, um, to correct. One, one aspect I wanted, one issue I wanted to ask you about before we are starting to get low on time, but uh, I know I know something else that you've identified uh, as an issue to address during your term is 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 that of gun violence in this country, and I'm wondering what you see uh, the ABA's role being uh, with regard to this issue. What is it that you see the ABA as potentially being able to do to help uh, stem the uh, problem of gun violence? Well, this is a really a, a tough issue, um, tough legal questions involved, emotions involved. Uh, the ABA does not get involved in politics, and as an organization, we don't support political candidates or parties, and we don't have a political action committee, but we can and, I, and, and have for a long time spoken out on important legal issues, national legal issues like gun violence. And I think America's response to gun violence uh, so far has is really unacceptable. The endemic gun violence that one sees is not just the mass shootings that now take place every other month across the U.S., but the daily shooting of some little kid somewhere who's watching a basketball game or sitting at home watching TV. Uh, The ABA really going back to the Kennedy assassination action through our House of Delegates has taken a strong stance on reducing gun violence 
and supporting legislation that protects important Second Amendment rights while keeping us all safer. And I think there is a, an important role for us to play here in educating the public um, and ourselves about what our Constitution requires uh, and what it doesn't with regard to gun violence legislation. That, that's something that I'm hoping we can do more of uh, during the coming year. So, well, it's just about time for us to wrap up the program with your final thoughts and your contact information, Jim. So we'll turn the mic over to you again and, and ask you to wrap up your uh, discussion with us today with your final thoughts and provide your contact information. So if any of our listeners would like to reach out to you and discuss some of these things, they can get a hold of you. That would be great. Uh, and thanks for the opportunity to do that. One of the things that I've really been most surprised about is in in light of the current discussion about costs of going to law school and and uh, problems in legal education is the the strong interest uh, all across the country in law as a a profession of change of ways that um, society can be shaped uh, and I think that's really the greatest strength of the legal profession is that really no matter what part of it you're involved in whether it's legal aid representation or representation of corporations or involvement in um, election law issues just to cover the gamut, uh, there is a chance to shape society um, and really provide um, an important positive impact in your community. And I think that's why I like working with lawyers, admire the uh, attorneys with whom I get to work, uh, and why it is still such a vital and important profession in the U.S., be delighted to talk to any of your listeners about uh, any of these topics or anything else coming up for the legal profession or the U.S. justice system. And the best way to reach me uh, is by email at jsilkenat, S-I-L-K-E-N-A-T, at S-A-N-D-W.com. Be delighted to talk to them. Great. And thank you very much for being on the show today. And again, congratulations for your election today. And, and uh, we wish you the best of luck in the ensuing year. And we'll be interested to see uh, how the programs work out. Great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. We've come to the point in the show where Bob and I share our closing thoughts. It's a new edition where we each have only 30 seconds to share our final thoughts before the buzzer goes off. So, Bob, go. Uh, well, I just want to say I, I really uh, like the idea of a, a legal access job core. Uh, it makes a lot of sense uh, insofar as it can address both both the lack of access to justice and the lack of job opportunities for young lawyers. I, I would like to see the ABA also include a focus on how technology can be used in helping to enhance access to justice uh, and perhaps uh, make up for uh, uh, shortfalls in uh, in in uh, sufficient numbers of lawyers. Uh, look at how technology can be used to help develop that. But it'll be an interesting year. Uh, Craig, uh, that was my buzzer. How about you? And I'm excited to see uh, Jim's reform of the uh, legal education come into play. I'm I'm frustrated myself with my own son's debt, and uh, we're working on getting that taken care of. But I think that. If you want to have high-quality lawyers and, and high-quality legal education, certainly we're going to have to pay for it, but we also have to figure out a way to share this burden uh, among a broader uh, populace than just one individual who's, who's gotten that. So I'm buzzed off. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Let me just once again say thanks a lot to Jim Selkinat for being with us today. It was a really fascinating conversation. And thanks to our listeners for listening to Lawyer. You can join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.